Welcome to Mother Food Season 2, Conversations that Nourish the Modern Mother. I'm your host, Elisa Timoshkina, food writer, author, curator, chef, and a mother, passionate about maternal empowerment through food and conversation. In this season, we meet women who forged inspiring careers in food, nutrition, and wellness, while also embracing lives as mothers. We talk about what it means to be a woman, a mother, and a creative. We share intimate moments of our complex journey with all the intricacies of our relationships to our bodies, our partners, and our children. And of course, there's a lot of talking about the food. I passionately believe that when women's voices come together to share stories, some magical transformation takes place. So, let's talk. Today, I have a really lovely guest on the show. Her name is Julia Buzutil Nishimura. She is a Melbourne-based cook, author, and teacher. She is an author of the best-selling cookbooks, Ostro, and A Year of Simple Family Food, which came out recently and has already sold out of its first print. I have been a big fan of Julia's work. I absolutely love the incredible aesthetic of her work, but also the heartiness and the realness and the comfort value of the food that she cooks. And as of recent, I've been particularly drawn to the very beautiful, intimate moments of her family that she shares. It was such a pleasure talking to her. This was the first time that we have spoken but it immediately felt like I was talking to a good friend. So I hope you also enjoy the lovely warm company as much as I did. There are a few things that were particularly close to my heart. There is a theme that runs through the various episodes of the podcast, but we've never really honed in on it. And that theme being our relationship to our own mothers and the way we mother our children, how is that connected to our own memories of our childhood and our mums? So it's been really fascinating to get a sense of how much um, Julia's own memory of her mum has cropped up in her own experience as a young mother um, and perhaps has challenged her, but as we talk on the podcast, you know, these challenges are so essential to actually grow and understand yourself a lot deeper. Julia also shares her birth stories, which I found so relatable in a way that they're not your perfect ideal scenario story. But despite the challenges and the unexpected turns and twists in the experience, um, they're still extremely empowering and just remind us of the diversity of this experience. We also talk about what it's like to be a creative and a woman who refuses to be defined by motherhood alone. And this is something I believe most of us face. And it was a wonderful reminder that we shouldn't feel ashamed and embarrassed of wanting to pursue more than just being a mother. 
And there's a lot of really delicious food discussed in this episode. Julia shares a really wonderful recipe with us, which you can also get on the website. If you don't know Julia yet, I urge you to go straight over to her Instagram and her website to devour all that incredible content. But let's listen to the episode first. Hi, Julia. Welcome to Mother Food. Thank you so much for having me. Really thrilled to have you. I wanted to start by asking you about your family background. I've actually just, before we started recording, I've asked you how to pronounce your name because it's such a fascinating <laughs> surname. So uh, could yeah. you tell us a bit about that? Of course. Yeah, so um, my parents are from Malta. They're Maltese. Um, my mum was born here in Australia, but her parents migrated to Australia from Malta. Um, and my dad migrated from Malta when he was about 18. So, yeah, all Maltese. Um, yeah, pretty big family. <laughs> yeah, and my, my partner's Japanese, which is the last part of my name, <laughs> which is why I've got the double, double barrel. But, yeah, it's, it yeah. is kind of a tricky one. And what kind of food <laughs> did you grow up around um, in your family? Yeah, I mean, growing up, it was definitely very... Maltese focused I mean you know like a lot of migrant kind of groups or families you know you don't often have all of that food that reminds you of home and so you do cook it a lot and um, even you know there is a quite a, a large migrant population from Malta here but where we happen to live you know you couldn't really just you know, go to a shop and find all the things. So we did make a lot of things. You know, we would make the ricotta at home. Um, we'd grow the broad beans. We, you know, our friends would drop off rabbits and things like that. So it was definitely, um, yeah, very Maltese. And I think I didn't probably really know anything else until I went to primary school so until I went to school and started seeing um you know like Vegemite sandwich like Marmite sandwiches <laughs> and um yeah just different foods and um you know trying like Chinese food for the first time was uh, and I was probably like middle of primary school you know it was just like very much um yeah the kind of really familiar like a lot of pasta bakes um yeah, rabbit, like I said, um, a lot of ricotta, a lot of peas. <laughs> um, very, yeah, very Maltese family home cooking um, was what I mostly grew up with. I mean, there was, my mum actually worked for Qantas, like the airlines in the 70s. Oh, right. And so she did kind of have like a few recipes that she would pull out every now and then kind of like dinner party recipes. Like, mm -hmm. um, yeah, I guess quite French and... Sometimes a bit of like, you know, tagine and those kind of like um, retro, I suppose, dishes that were yeah. kind of, um, you know, became really popular through like magazines and things. But um, yeah, mostly definitely Maltese food as well. Pardon my ignorance, but uh, what is Maltese food like and what are the origins in general? Yeah, I mean, Maltese food is really interesting because they were you know they had a lot of different kind of groups of people kind of come to Malta and 
you know, either take it over for a, a period of time or, you know, it was colonised by Britain for a while. Um, it is, you know, there are a lot of similarities with Italian or more Sicilian food. You know, you kind of get a lot of the dried fruits in the savoury dishes, um, some, you know, they use a little bit of spice. Like if you make a pasta sauce, they will put some like mixed spice in. Those kind of little additions, which I guess, um, you know, show the kind of thread of of the people or groups that have been there beforehand. So, um, you know, it has that little kind of Middle Eastern, um, even North African sometimes influence. Like it's so close to Tunisia um, and Sicily, it's an hour by ferry. So it has that kind of real melting pot. And then you have these kind of British influences like um, pastizzi, for example, is um, these like savoury ricotta pastries essentially and you know you you started you started seeing it being made with like margarine and things like that (laughs) which you know I don't really think were you know was there before and um yeah it's a real it's a real melting pot it's a real mix and I think it does reflect that kind of yeah history um you know but there are the staples you know they grow capers like capers are really kind of prolific on the island um a lot of seafood like octopus um rabbit is we say it's the national dish rabbit stew (laughs) (laughs) um but it is you know really like peasant peasant food um you know past past meat sauce will always have peas in it um yeah they have things like cannoli which is you know you find in italy as well um yeah it's, it's a really it's a real mix it's really really comforting I mean for me it's really comforting it's the food of like my childhood and yeah I, I love it Ra- ravioli is you know it's like ravioli a bit a bit uh, more rustic sounds amazing and it's interesting <laughs> that in Italy there's a very strong figure of the mother or the grandmother the nonna and mm-hmm. our food is so much connected to the women um, mm. is that something that Maltese cuisine and culinary culture takes on from Italy as well I guess it's obviously generalization but totally yeah I I mean I would say I would say so like you know my mum you know was the the cook in the house and my grandmother was whenever we'd be at um you know gatherings it would always be like my aunties in the kitchen it was definitely like the female the matriarch kind of domain Mm -hmm. um but then, you know, we, we used to go to the Maltese club a lot, like a cultural centre where, you know, we'd have like feast days and celebrations and, you know, in the kitchen actually it was a lot of, um, yeah, some, some men cooking as well. But, I mean, you know, in the, in the home and in kind of, um, you know, in a cultural way, like in the kind of familial setting, it was definitely, yeah, female orientated. I'm always fascinated by how in the act of nourishment, um, generations pass down a lot more than just food and we ingest so much about the cultural values and the family values uh, that we grow up around. So I was wondering what kind of values in terms of womanhood and motherhood were passed on to you through the food and through kind of that culinary community that you grew up in? Yeah, I mean, it is so fascinating. I think my mum would always kind of tell me how even though her parents didn't really have much, you know, they were migrants, um, they came, you know, by boat to Australia, they were always the first ones to kind of 
take in, you know, other Maltese people who had arrived and didn't really have anywhere to stay or didn't have a meal. And it was that kind of act that food is more than just, you know, a a plate. It's more than just a a meal. It's that kind of generosity. It's that sign of, of love. It's that kind of offering of friendship, I suppose. And that's something that definitely my mum kind of instilled in us as well about, you know, sharing food, being generous, um, you know, being really compassionate and empathetic towards people, I think it was kind of interwoven into how she cooked and how she invited people in. She always said she had like an open door policy, you know, if, (laughs) and is that very like Mediterranean kind of mindset, you know, there's always room at the table, um, the more the merrier. And I, I think, that's something that I, you know, I hope when my boys grow up that I can do that too with, you know, their friends and I definitely do that with, you know, our friends. I think I love cooking for people and I love that it is more than just kind of, you know, nutrition. It's such a deeper connection and, um, yeah, something really lovely that you can do for people to, you know, make them happy and make them feel comfortable or, you know, um, yeah, I think that's really special and something that definitely has kind of been passed down from my mum and her mum and Mm. probably before that. (laughs) (laughs) And do you think that that love of feeding in any way connects to kind of a ability to be a mother, that idea that you can, can almost selflessly share and, you know, nurture others? There's, it seems like there is something in that relationship yeah I mean you know being a mum being a mother is so you do have to really go above and beyond what you almost thought you were capable of doing Mm. you know I think before you become a mother like you just can't imagine like if someone told you all the things that you would be doing and um this kind of I suppose sacrifices or um, the way you adapt as a, as a human being, you know, I, I, you kind of wouldn't believe them because it does feel so much, like it feels so above what you are capable of doing. Mm. And then when you become a mother, you just do it, like you instinctively do it and you often want to do it. <laughs> you know, some days you don't want to do it, but... Um, <laughs> But I think it does, it does link in and I think that kind of, that, gen, that generosity, you, you really have to give a lot of yourself, um, which I think has been the biggest thing, not that surprised me, but I think the biggest thing I've experienced, yeah, is being, of being a mother is, you know, how much you do give of yourself. Mm, absolutely, yeah. And did you have a straightforward relationship to the idea of motherhood and being a woman? that you kind of will be a mother eventually? Yeah, I was, I mean, I was really, ex- I, I kind of always thought I would be a mother. Like I, I, I wanted that. Um, and I suppose, you know, when I met my partner, Nori, I was pretty, uh, we got married, I was 25. So I guess kind of like young, I suppose, and today, by today's standards. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, I had Haruki when I was 26. So just a year later after we got married and, I think, you know, my childhood was great, but it was also, you know, my parents divorced when I was six years old and um, I didn't really have that kind of stable upbringing that I craved, I suppose. And I think in a way it was, I I wanted to kind of have that chance to like make that for my own family. And so I, I, I definitely, yeah, 
it wasn't like it was redemption, but it was, you know, an opportunity more so to um, kind of create that environment, which I suppose I wanted in a way as a child. And, um, you know, I was, I didn't really think so much, you know, I focused so much on the labour and the, the birth and preparing for that. I didn't really think of what was to come. Like I think that is off from what, you know, speaking to friends, that is often the case, you know, there's so much emphasis put into just getting to that birth mm. <laughs> and then, you know, the postpartum and what it actually means to be a mother and how much support you really do need, you know, that just doesn't really, yeah, often get, get talked about. So it was, yeah, it was the first kind of, um, you know, person in my close group of friends to have a baby and I didn't really know anyone with, with babies. So, you know, it was quite an isolating experience actually, you know, the first year I would say, but um, mm-hmm. it was difficult. <laughs> yeah. Now it's interesting that so many women find it so hard and actually, but also hard to admit to that. Yeah. And yeah, we'll totally. get into this um, catch-22 that, you know, mm-hmm. we don't talk about it. And because we don't talk about it, that continues to be the case for exactly. a Exactly. And I think, you know, um, you know, I had a lot of um, postpartum anxiety the first time around. And I think that was a little bit, you know, my relationship with my mum was one of, I guess, yeah, she was quite anxious. And I never really realised that until... I became a mother. I think, mm. you know, you have a lot of revelations about your own experience as a child and um, like your relationship with your mother when I think when you become a mother and you kind of understand, you get a bit more clarity and perspective, you know, in some ways you appreciate them so much. And then in other ways you kind of, you know, you have all these memories come back of, mm-hmm. you know, experiences or, um, yeah, or how they relate to you becoming a mother. I think it's a really interesting kind of journey that you go on together essentially. Um, but, um, yeah, I had a lot of anxiety with, with Haruki and, again, this time around. And I think you're so right, like, being able to talk about it is really important because I think it helps people and it helps yourself and you kind of forge this community around you that, you know, number one knows what you're going through because, you know, it, if, especially at the moment where we're so disconnected, you know, face-to-face with people, it is so important to, yeah, be able to talk about it because I think a lot of people go through it and it's so super important to kind of have those real, real and honest conversations, um, yeah, mm-hmm. even if it's challenging because they are yeah. challenging, you know. It is Absolutely. hard to admit that you're struggling or, um, you know, that you're not coping as well as you had imagined and, mm-hmm. but I, yeah. It's really important. Yeah, especially when you're in the moment, you know, it's mm-hmm. easier perhaps retrospectively once you have that helpful sure. distance of time and, you know. For sure. Um, what role did food play in that first year um, as, you know, food is such a big emotional, it's not just mm. physical nourishment, but it's such an emotional and psychological part of that very tender year. How did you use food to help you get through it? For me, food has, you know, probably since I was pregnant with Haruki has been such a way to kind of, um, yeah, slow down and be mindful and be present, um, you know, in what I'm doing and kind of I think especially in those early days 
um, or that first year with, with a newborn or with a baby, you, you know, you kind of, it's so unpredictable, you know, sleep and feeding and um, everything, your world essentially is turned upside mm. down. Um, and I think having food for me was kind of very reassuring and very stabilizing and it meant, you know, I could, you know, take an hour, make a, bake a cake or make some pastry with my hands, which, you know, really kind of puts me in the moment. But also I know I'm, it's, it's very predictable. <laughs> um, and I feel like, you know, that you kind of need that um, predictability in some aspects of your life to kind of, you know, I felt like I was achieving something, you know, in a day when I might have not, you know, got dressed or um, we didn't do anything, you know, aside from looking after a baby, which is a lot. But, you know, yes. when you're in that moment, you feel like, you feel, oh, I've done absolutely nothing today. And you kind of, it's easy to get down on yourself. And I think, you know, cooking and food was really important and really cherished. Like I remember being in labor with Haruki and I was, you know, baking bread. Because I didn't, <laughs> you know, it was the only thing that was like, could take my mind off it. <laughs> That's amazing. Tell me more about it. <laughs> That's such a beautiful image of a woman in labor and making bread. That's just almost biblical. It's amazing. I know. It's true. Well, I, um, yeah, my waters broke, um, two weeks early with Haruki and I'd gone into the hospital um, to get it checked out and he basically, there was no birthing suites available and he wasn't anywhere near like I was one centimetre dilated or something. So I had a private midwife um, with me and she came back home and she's like, you know, just stay, stay the night at home and rest um, and then in the next day we'll go, we'll go back in. And so I was in very early labour but you know obviously anxious you know it was my mm -hmm. first first baby and my waters had broke it was kind of not you know how i'd planned yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> you know you you imagine how it's gonna go yeah and so i started making some sourdough and i in my mind i was like okay when i get home from the yeah. hospital i'll be able to bake it <laughs> which wasn't you know very naive very um i guess yeah n not quite clear how it was gonna pan out but um yeah, making bread and yeah, we, we went in the next day and it was actually really great labor, you know, in, in hindsight after the second one. Um, yeah, we, we had Haruki the next, the next morning and I actually went home that day because I'd, I'd already been in the hospital for, you know, kind of a day before and had a private midwife who was really supportive and she kind of stayed with us the, the following day at home. So yeah, it was a really, I was induced, but it was a really great, um, mm. great, lab great labor, mm -hmm. which yeah, was a great first. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. That sounds almost exactly the same as my birth story. Yeah. Right. Though I did not make any bread. <laughs> I <laughs> can't I bake to baked, save my life. <laughs> like, like I made the dough. <laughs> amazing. And did you prepare yourself um, in any other way for that fourth trimester did you have an idea of kind of how you want it to be and what foods you want to have available for yourself not really I think um you know I didn't do a lot of preparation I was just kind of went went into it blindly I would say <laughs> um and I I didn't really yeah I didn't really do research or you know as I said I didn't really have friends who had had babies I was kind of just 
winging it and I hadn't really yeah planned you know special foods to have or you know in in Japanese culture there's the whole like Mm -hmm. 40 days and you're very well looked after and you know everyone brings you meals and it it, it definitely was like that to a certain extent I had a lot of friends you know drop off meals which just you know makes the world of difference like Mm -hmm. having having that ready to go um yeah, no, not so much. I think more so this time around, you know, I did a lot more preparation and, you know, I think having a, you know, I had a four-year-old, got a five-year-old now, but he was four when Yuki was born and you are, you have a lot more knowledge and I was very much more prepared for that, like what it was to be like, I suppose. So I think having having another child around makes you, you know, be a bit more prepared. <laughs> <laughs> and how does... You already mentioned it. Um, how does it compare to your second birth? Yeah, um, the second birth. Um, so I didn't go through. So with my first, I went you know the public through the public hospital, but with a private midwife. So I had kind of a lot of my appointments just with the private midwife, and then she was at, attended the birth as well, um, which was amazing. And then this time, I didn't do that. I just went um, through the public system, which was great as well. I had a really amazing um, GP, like an amazing doctor who I did shared care with. Um, And so I felt really supported and felt really great with all the lead ups. And then I just kind of assumed because I'd gone early with my first, I would go (laughs) early with my second. Um, But it wasn't to be. I was at the hospital for my, you know, 40 week checkup. I was a few days overdue. um, And they were kind of booking me for an induction for the following week um, because he didn't seem to be moving down. Um, And I think he did a stretch and sweep and I had to have some fetal monitoring for the heart because I was overdue just to make sure he was happy. Um, and my waters broke at the hospital <laughs> while I was um, on, on the bed. So that was pretty um, handy. Um, yeah. And yeah, I was already there in the bags, which was great. Um, and so then, yeah, it was, uh, I was worried I was going to have to be induced again, but I went into labour naturally, which was great. I just really wanted to experience that kind of natural birth the kind of the contractions and the feeling of being a bit more in control than the first time because they, you know, with the induction, with the drip, it was very fast and very, mm-hmm. you know, controlled um, by the by the midwives. And it was all going really well. It was quite, yeah, quite, it became really painful really quickly, more than I remembered with Haruki. Um, and they realised that every contraction, his heart rate kept dropping really low. Like it was, they were really worried. And this went on for several hours and there was a lot of talk of um, cesarean section. Um, the doctors were coming in, you know, and I think when you, when you start seeing the obstetricians, you start getting a little mm. bit worried because, um, you know, usually it's just the midwives. Um, yeah, so the obstetricians were kept, kept coming in and the head midwife um, and he just wasn't coping and so they had to do these lactate tests where they checked like if he was in distress um, and he was doing fine but, um, you know, it was really, really painful because I couldn't move during contractions. I had to be on the bed um, because every time I moved around, his heart rate would really drop and they were worried that there was a cord prolapse. Mm. Um, and, yeah, so that was pretty stressful and I was, you know, this had been about um, oh, maybe like, yeah, eight hours by now. I was 
completely exhausted because, you know, when you have the contractions, you want to be able to move around to where it's comfortable. And I just wasn't able to do that. Like, you know, I'd be mid contraction, they like turn over and they would physically have to turn me over um, to like try and, you know, make sure he wasn't on the cord or whatever it was causing the heart rate to drop. Um, and so it was about by 6am. So I'd been kind of all, all night. Um, I just, I had to have an epidural. Like I just couldn't take it anymore. Mm. Um, and so I had an epidural, which was incredible (laughs) (laughs) because I was just exhausted and the pain, it turned out he was posterior, which is why, you know, he, I kind of was stuck at six centimeters and it just wasn't, and I think I was, yeah, a bit deflated because at 11 o'clock the night before, the midwife was like, I think you're going to have this baby by midnight. And I was like, amazing. She's like, second baby, he'll be out. I was super positive, really good mindset. I had an amazing midwife um, on the, that night, which was, <laughs> which was awesome. Um, but yeah, it got to about six or seven and then I had the epidural and then um, the obstetrician came in and said, well, you're going to have to go in for a cesarean. And I was a mess like I was sobbing um Mm. you know I wanted to obviously you want to do what's right for the baby but you know I'd gone through all of that and I was just like willing him to come out Mm. um but anyway so I got wheeled down to theatre um I had to get topped up on the with the you know pain relief um went in for for a cesarean and then the obstetrician turned him and got him out with forceps oh, in, wow. the theater, in theater so I didn't have oh my god um, I'm on the edge of my seat of my seat now. <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't even have a sedarium but I was down in um theater um, oh wow yeah so it was a very um you know it was I'd gone from this really warm space like this birthing unit the midwife was incredible like she you know, lit the fake candles and had music going. <laughs> um, you know, I felt really safe and, and, and secure. And then going into the theatre, which is, you know, super bright, you're all in scrubs, um, complete, you know, at one point I was panicking because I felt like I just couldn't breathe, you know, the, I was so heavily kind of with the pain relief. Um, yeah, it was a definitely a different birth and, yeah, I had to have an episiotomy and, yeah, it was it was a hard birth. I would say, like looking back, it was quite traumatic. <laughs> mm. um, which I don't think, even you know, even a month or two months after that, you really realise until you know you get a bit of foresight, a bit of perspective. Yeah. And how did you help yourself to embrace that? Because obviously, it wasn't part of the plan, and as you said, it was mm. quite a traumatic experience. Mm. Um, I was really lucky that I had the same midwife who was with me for most of the labour. She was the um, night midwife for both nights on the ward, which, you know, it's, I birthed at the Royal Women's Hospital in Melbourne, which is huge and that's really uncommon to kind of have that continuity of care in the public system. So, um, yeah, it was really amazing to, like, debrief with her and she kind of, I think when you become a mother and a new mother, even, you know, second, third time, when you have a baby, sometimes you doubt your feelings and you often doubt, you know, am I, is this legitimate, like what I'm feeling? Um, Mm -hmm. And so it was really amazing to debrief with her and she was like, she's like, oh, my God, I had to go have a wine. It was like 6 o'clock in the morning. Like that was such a, (laughs) you know, she was like that was the most intense labour I've attended. And I was like, oh, okay. Like it really validated my experience because I think, you know, yeah, it is easy to kind of um, discount that and to kind of just, you know, 
keep on carry on kind of mentality whereas it is important I think to sit in that um yeah in that moment and kind of appreciate that that was really traumatic and you know this person's validating validating that and that kind of helped me move on um I suppose and on top of that you know I have fortnightly therapy (laughs) which helps Mm -hmm. it's really good you know I think as you know I really think that a lot of all new mothers should, you know, have have someone to talk to. Like, I think it's really helpful and that's helped me, I think, um, kind of understand, you know, you know, those kind of moments, but also like how I see myself as a mother and with my relationship with my own mom. And, you know, it's more common when you become a mother, it becomes for some people, for me anyway, it's become, yeah, complex kind of relationship. Yeah. Mm -hmm. More complex than I realized, I think. Yeah. And it's so important to have that person or even just a space where you can make sense of your experiences. And I think it's really essential that our healthcare system includes that as part of the mother's care, because it's not just about monitoring, you know, your blood counts and all that. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Because here as well, there's a six weeks checkup at mm. which point they just ask you how are you mm. feeling do you need mm. contraception and that's it yeah that's same <laughs> yeah. as he really yeah and I was absolutely shell-shocked <laughs> too mm. from how it's like, like how am I yeah yeah definitely and I think um often when you know because it, it is about finding someone that you can confide in and whether that's like often I've, I've found like those six week appointments are with like a maternal child health nurse and they're kind of just ticking boxes a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you don't really feel like you can kind of open up um, yeah. to, 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 you know, to those people, but um, yeah, it is so important and it's so important to normalize it, I think, because um, for me, we, like it's been a really important part of my postpartum kind of experience. Mm. Again, did, cooking or being fed help in any way or, or um you know are there any particular dishes that you turn to when you need that support and just kind mm-hmm. of nourish yourself and enjoy the actual act of cooking yeah i think um definitely you know making pasta is something that brings me a lot of joy and kind of makes me feel myself again you know in the I think when you love cooking so much and, you know, in those first few months or weeks when you physically, you know, you're so exhausted and you're not able to kind of cook how you, how you're used to or how you like to cook, um, you know, you're kind of just like catching a meal here <laughs> or mm-hmm. a bite or an end of a, you know, toast or whatever. Um, yeah, I think when you start to find that rhythm, it, and when I started to find that rhythm, it's really um, nourishing and makes me feel myself when I can, you know, make fresh pasta and also feed my family. It feels really, um, yeah, like very, like I've accomplished something, but also I've, you know, fed my, um, curiosity or my something that, yeah, brings me joy. So definitely making pasta for me has Mm. this year has been really amazing, especially being in lockdown. Like it feels really satisfying and comforting to eat and, really mm. joyful to make yeah <laughs> um yeah because it has you know I think I think going from one to two kids has been you know a, a really big juggle especially being you know in lockdown or, yeah, gosh, um, yeah you know without kindergarten all these things yeah. you kind of plan and think that you have and 
especially with a new baby, you know, you kind of look forward to all those moments of like mm-hmm. having friends over and introducing them to family and, you know, oh, visiting, okay. um, oh. yeah, visiting family interstate and things like that that just haven't happened. And yeah, 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 it's been a real year of like adapting and finding those kind of core joys, I suppose, that um, are like in inside rather than, you know, when depended on all those external factors which Mm. yeah is challenging but getting through it (laughs) (laughs) what were your what still are because you're still in lockdown and who knows Mm. where we're gonna be once this episode is out because yeah um what are your coping strategies and how do you look after two children and keep your elder son occupied (laughs) (laughs) does again does food and cooking play any part in that yeah, he loves to help in the kitchen. Um, he, whenever I'm making pasta or anything, you know, our kitchen's really tiny and so I'm often on the kitchen table making, you know, I put the big wooden board out and we're often in, on, in the dining room, which is like such a communal space. Um, yeah, cooking or um, potting broad beans today um, and he just kind of sees what I'm doing and is really interested and, he loves cooking and I really try to encourage him to do that as, as much as I can. But I think, um, yeah, like honestly, it's been a, such a, such a s- struggle to, you know, have an eight month old and a five year old at home and only, you know, the rules for us at, at the moment as we're recording, we're only allowed to leave the house for an hour a day. And, wow. you know, anyone with, <laughs> Uh, you know, a five-year-old would say that's just um, torture. <laughs> mm, absolutely. So I guess it's, yeah, I guess it's just been trying to find our own little rhythm. And um, I'm fortunate, you know, my partner, he's a chef actually. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, and they've kind of, where he works, they've, they're just doing, you know, takeaway a few days a week. So he, or he only has to work a few days a week. So he's been home a lot more, which is definitely a silver lining because mm-hmm. I feel like when he's home, like everything's fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You can just, it's just so much more manageable. Um, and I've just been so busy. Like my new book just came out two yes. weeks ago in the, in yes, the middle so of lockdown. <laughs> <laughs> so um, yeah, it's, but I, I don't know if I have any tips because I think, you know, we've all just been, kind of day by day and trying not to like sweat the small stuff um you know he watches tv like mm. <laughs> we you know i think it's yep. just like not being too hard on ourselves and trying to be you know i used to be a primary school teacher and i'm you, you know like i've we've done a little bit of kind of homeschooling i mean he's still in kindergarten so it hasn't been so you know no need for mm-hmm. a real structure um yeah, I guess we've just been trying to really enjoy these time, these this time together because I don't think in touch wood, I don't think this will happen again. <laughs> you know, these like really intense family times, which you know in the beginning was amazing because Nori was home the whole time. It was basically like extended paternity leave, which I was really grateful for because mm-hmm. um, as soon as he went back to work, I, that's when I noticed my anxiety. You know, kind of ramping up a little bit. So I think being a nice tight family unit has been really nice this year actually yeah. besides all of the external yeah. <laughs> the reason for it you know it's not a positive thing but um yeah silver linings mm, absolutely and mm. does your husband contribute with cooking at home as well yeah yeah definitely he it's very much um 
he yeah he he's a he loves cooking and he cooks a lot of Japanese food um but also yeah super interested in in all in all different foods he loves cooking Italian and he cook you know we kind of tag team and often I'm cooking because I'm you know recipe writing or recipe mm-hmm. testing and we just we'll eat that for dinner or lunch um but yeah definitely when I'm when I don't feel like it or he yeah he's always cooking too he's he cooks breakfast every morning and um yeah often makes lunch and yeah oh, always something. cooking <laughs> we're both having lunch <laughs> together when we can you know oh, that's, that's kind of rare I feel like dream. now we have two kids yeah <laughs> we're kind of I think that's the biggest thing I've noticed and you know I before it was, you know, we were one child and always together, but now it's like, okay, you take her, you know, I've got mm-hmm. to, um, so you definitely are more split with our time and, um, but it's, yeah, it's great. It's a really, um, lively kind of very creative in the kitchen, kind of really nice environment mm-hmm. to be, to be in. I'm always bouncing ideas, which is lovely. Yeah. And how amazing for your children to grow up around parents who are so, in love with cooking and they cook <laughs> together. It's just wonderful. Um, yeah. Do you, yeah. How do you eat as a family? And obviously your little boy is now eating food as well. Yes. Um, how, how did you transition in, into food and um, kind of how do you cultivate this relationship to food for your children? Um, yeah, so we eat together every you know we eat pretty early every night um together and Haruki is he loves food he loves you know he eats I would say everything except for you know like super spicy curries and things like that but um I think my kind of ethos from the very beginning was just be really relaxed I think having a really relaxed approach has served us well and kind of fostered this yeah, love in love for him in in food and um, a really good relationship. I hope with you know eating and with um, cooking. Um, he's really interested in what we're cooking, Virginia. He kind of like, you know, asks for the things to cook, and he has a really beautiful book. I don't know if you know. It's called Lunch at Ten Pomegranate Street. No, it's a oh, it's so beautiful. It's like an illustrated. It's a it's a children's picture book essentially, but it has all these recipes in it. Oh, amazing! Um, and he loves it. And so, kind of on the weekends, we'll like pick a recipe out of that and cook it together. And um, yeah, I think just being really relaxed when we started, you know, Haruki with food um, is my biggest kind of mantra I suppose like if he doesn't want to eat it that's fine and mm-hmm. you, you know we just keep on offering it um and yeah again this time with Yukita yeah very relaxed even more so relaxed because I think we got Haruki so um <laughs> you often get to, almost forgotten I was like oh he even had dinner um no he's only eight months so it's fine um but yeah very relaxed very um you know we really emphasize the kind of joy in eating and the pleasure that you know, eating really good, good food um, brings. And I think that's just through us, you know, we instinctively like that. We are really passionate about food. Um, yeah, when we go to Japan, um, yeah, Haru loves, you know, coming to the market um, here as well. Obviously, we do the shopping together. We kind of, it's just so part of our lives. Like we, it's hard for them not to be, mm-hmm, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. you know, and, and it's fun. Like kids love 
food and cooking, you know, I think when you involve them in it, in the process and picking the fruit and, you know, like what do you want to pack for your lunch? And I think giving them some autonomy and yeah, ownership on it is really um, important. I think when you kind of remove them from where food comes from and um, how it's prepared and who grows it and, you know, going to the farmer's market is incredible, you know, seeing the farmers there, you know, mm-hmm. as, you know, we live in the city and often you can be really removed from that. But yeah, yeah. I think involving them in, in you know, is really important. Mm-hmm. And to me also was a really beautiful kind of natural way to just monitor a little bit that I'm not lapsing into any bad habits that my daughter mm. kind of inspired me to be a bit more, I guess, well, cautious in a kind of healthy way that you mm. know, I'm more mindful and I'm more aware that, mm. you know, we are leading by example. And, uh, totally. So it's been, yeah, for yeah, me, it's, it's been a really lovely kind of synergy and mm. it's been That's fun so well put. enjoying the, the food together so much. Yeah, definitely. I think you're so right. And I think it is an, an investment, you know, you do have to invest in, you know, their you know, fostering their love of it because I don't mm-hmm. think it just does come naturally. I think you do have to, you know, I remember when I'm with Yukita, like we really overemphasize, like this is so delicious. <laughs> um, and it rubs off, like I really think it rubs off, but you do have to kind of make a conscious effort, I think, to involve them and um, to make it a family, a family thing. Like this is mm-hmm. how we do it in our family and this is such a part of our life and it's good. It feels good to like, you know, want to eat good food and to want to cook and, um, yeah, I think having that really positive attitude is is contagious with mm-hmm. with most things. So, and do you cook any dishes uh, that you ate yourself as a child? And if um, your mother's dishes, <laughs> yeah, I do. I I don't cook as much. Um, Maltese food as I would like like I really would love to kind of delve into that a little bit more because I think it's funny like that's all I had growing up and then kind of when I became the age where I could cook my own food I kind of turned away from Mm -hmm. it you know because it was so you know it wasn't boring by any means but you know it felt so um almost too familiar you know I wanted different flavors and I wanted to explore different cuisines and you know I'd lived in Italy for a little bit and that really you know Italian food was kind of became my really strong passion but um yeah I do cook a little bit like I make the ravioli which are the ricotta filled pasta Mm-hmm. I really like making that. Um, I make um, rosti forn, which is baked rice, which is super comforting. Um, and similar, like um, um, it's called amiul forn. It's a uh, like a baked macaroni. Mm. Um, I do that. What else do I do? Oh, I make um, a really delicious fish soup called aliota, which is kind of my grandmother's recipe, um, like a rated. Yeah, my mum kind of told me the recipe, how she remembered her mum making it. So that's in my first book, actually. Mm. I, it's like my version <laughs> of, of that fish soup. They really, yeah, I really love how, you know, obviously recipes get passed down and changed. And, um, yeah, that's kind of the way I do it. But, um, yeah, fish yeah. soup, what else do I make? Yeah. 
I use a lot of, um, you know, I just use a lot of ricotta. I think it's like I use a lot of capers and broad beans and um, a lot of the similar kind of ingredients. Yeah. But I would love to, like, that's kind of my next, you know, I'd love to go back to Malta. I haven't been in quite a few years and just spend some time, you know, with my aunties and learn a little bit more from them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting how I have a very similar story where I never really felt that drawn to exploring Russian food. As I perhaps got older and I really started being kind of pulled back to that um, Mm. food and when my book deal came about, Mm. I got pregnant at the same time and I just felt like such a magical moment which you know where I was there revisiting the food of my own childhood while Mm. preparing myself for becoming a mother Mm. Um, and I think in kind of in doing that I prepared myself a lot well I can't say better but I guess it it was a really (laughs) useful way a really you know meaningful way to prepare Mm. myself for motherhood I think um, it's only been since having the boys that I really want to kind of go and preserve that kind of, yeah, that Maltese culture because I, you know, they're now like I'm first generation Australian, my dad's side and they're, uh, for, yeah, for, yeah, and they was second, you know, my, their grandpa was born in, in Malta and I just don't want them to lose. Like it's so easy to kind of lose that once the parent stops kind of, teaching you know that next generation it's really hard to kind of get that back so I think yeah that made me want to um learn more myself and um kind of even if I'm not teaching them but just cooking up more at home so they're you know familiar with it um and similar with you know Japanese like Nori you know we do like the special like 100 day celebration when they're born and all these like little traditions which I'm probably more adamant that we do than he is Mm. but um I think I just seen it I suppose from my experience you know like I didn't learn Maltese as a child and um you know I don't have such a strong connection with the food as much as I would like you know like I don't have, you know know all the recipes off by heart and kind of have a lot of books from Malta and yeah I'm so adamant that they kind of learn Japanese and they know about all the cultures mm-hmm. and traditions sorry that mm-hmm. um you know are so important when you're away from your you know yeah country or heritage and mm-hmm. yeah I think it's really important and it's just beautiful your family is such an amazing example of that how different cultures come together and they keep evolving. And obviously the, um, you know, the sense of self that your boys will have and the, the role that food will play in that will be so different and it's going to be so unique, mm. but you know, yeah. as valid as anything as anyone else's totally. experience who is kind of a more straightforward born and bred, yeah. you know, citizen of a particular place. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for it's sure. Beautiful. No. And I'd love to talk more about your work as well. Cause obviously anyone who, knows your work on Instagram and your amazing cookbooks. I mean, it's just incredible. The, Aww, it's just thank so you. Beautiful. I'm such a big fan. Oh, <laughs> um, <that's> so nice. <laughs> uh, how did you start and where does your experience as a mother come in into that as well and if it informed it in any way? I always have loved cooking. I've, that, that's, you know, out of, I have an older brother and sister and, I kind of feel like my brother had soccer and my sister, um, you know, did music and my thing was cooking. (laughs) You know, it was a really such a part of my, you know, growing up and 
as a teenager, like all I wanted to do on weekends was cook and read my mum's cookbooks. And, um, you know, when I was 16, she bought me kind of like my first, you know, few cookbooks. And I just went down this rabbit hole of wanting to just cook more and learn more and read more. And I, um, my plan was to, you know, maybe become a chef, like do some study, but, you know, was and still is such to like a male dominated kind of industry and I found it really intimidating and I didn't think that that was really for me anyway like I think that kind of time pressure and I really enjoyed you know cookery books and the kind of slowness that it brought you know you could take your time picking a recipe and there was no one there to criticize you um it was quite you know liberating I suppose um and so I ended up not doing that at all and I ended up studying like an arts degree in politics and Italian at university. Um, and then I just, throughout all of that, I, that study, I was just always cooking and um, I did like a study abroad as part of my degree. Um, I went to Italy and that was kind of it. <laughs> I just completely fell in love with it, it, in a way, it felt like I'd returned to that kind of um, liveliness of my childhood and the big family gatherings and that generosity and, and it is so similar in so many ways and I hadn't experienced that, you know, for, I think, you know, like my parents splitting up, um, you know, our family became a lot smaller and we didn't have those big gatherings and I didn't have all of that, you know, after the age of six or seven. So, um, yeah, it was really an amazing kind of moment um for, for me because I realized that yeah I, I really loved food and maybe I wanted to do something more but um I ended up coming back and becoming a teacher <laughs> um <laughs> where I you know I taught Italian um in a primary school and in between that I went back to Italy and I was a nanny for a little while and I lived in southern Tuscany on a beautiful property and I started you know writing recipes and started a blog like I think you know a lot of people did um you know 10 years ago Mm. um and yeah from there it kind of just snowballed like um I just kept writing and um I started getting a little bit of you know coverage here in Australia um I started contributing to um like a really popular um like design and lifestyle blog essentially um and yeah, it just kind of happened. I was at the farmer's market um, near my house and my, the, my publisher had a juice stand with her partner. They were selling, like, selling <laughs> juice. <laughs> um, like he was a market, um, kind of like a, worked at the markets and so they would make juice on the weekends. <laughs> and she was like, I, she's like, I know you, like let's have a chat. And then, yeah, the rest is kind of history. Like I started... Yeah, I got this book deal, which I was just, you know, pinching myself. I was like, I'm, you know, this home cook with a small following, but I, I think, you know, it hasn't been that long since only kind of, you know, like restaurant chefs were getting cookbook deals. And it was a very different kind of, you know, world, obviously pre, you know, social media and that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, I was super excited and um, I wrote a book called Ostro in between 
you know, teaching and then having Haruki. He was about 18 months, I think, when we had the book shoot. So, wow. you know, I kind of wrote it while I, you know, he was a baby um, essentially. And, yeah, I just wanted it to be really, you know, that kind of comforting family food and, the, and a real, um, you know, a combination of um, the food I loved eating, you know, when I lived in Italy and a bit of the food I grew up with. and. Um, yeah, it was really nice because I guess I didn't have an audience, I would say, and I didn't know who was going to be buying it. So I really was one of those really special things that I was really doing for myself. And I, you know, I just wanted to be super proud of it. And um, yeah, I didn't feel any pressure, which was amazing. And um, yeah, it was, it's, I just love doing it. I just want to write books forever. <laughs> <laughs> it is an amazing thing to create. It's, not, oh, it's uh, really lovely. Yeah. And at which point did you move on to just doing food and food writing full time? Well, in a way, full time. Uh, almost. Yeah, I'd say two years ago now, I um, quit my teaching job. I was only, you know, part time and I was actually um, running like the kitchen garden program in Italian, which was, you know, it was amazing, but it was just so much work. And I had a three-year-old at home and I was you know teaching is incredible but also it's quite relentless you know you come home and you you don't get to clock off at you know four o'clock you've got a lot of work to do and mm -hmm. I just really wanted um you know to enjoy Haruki and enjoy that the weekends and um I just made the decision that you know I'm always gonna have like one foot in and one foot out if if I'm doing it like this and I just kind of had to um you know, it was scary because, like, financially it's not, you know, high-paying mm. yeah. <laughs> career move. Um, you know, but, um, yeah, I just felt like I needed to, you know, commit fully to it and that's, yeah, I'm so, so glad I did because um, then I started, yeah, writing on the second book and, yeah, I'm really, yeah, super, super glad. Like, it's just come out at a really good time here in Australia because everyone's, well, in Melbourne, at least, we're all cooking at home a lot. <laughs> yeah. And, I mean, your second book, it's kind of sold out in a flash, didn't it? <laughs> but... Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah, so my second book, um, A Year of Simple Family Food, um, yeah, just I just did not expect it. Like, the print run, the first print run sold out, like, on pre-orders alone. Oh, um, wow. And I, yeah, and they had to, like, rush to get um, more copies. And I think they're just kind of dropping now, like, a few weeks after um, after release date. So, and I think they just, they've done a second print run, which is, you know, unreal. Like, I just, yeah, could not have imagined it, to be honest. <laughs> um, yeah, super grateful. And, um, you know, people really put a lot of um, trust in you and your recipes when they buy a cookbook. Like, it's no, you know, it's, it's no, it's not a small thing, you know, to, to buy a cookbook and then to buy ingredients and cook from something like they really trust what you're doing. Mm. And I'm glad people kind of put that trust in, yeah. in my food. Yeah, that's amazing. So how does a kind of a normal and in inverted commas, I guess, day <laughs> <laughs> looks like for you with, um, you know, when you had to work on the book, you had yeah. a four-year-old. Mm. Yeah. How did you manage uh, to get it all done and still kind of preserve your sanity yeah I mean yeah I was pregnant when we were shooting the new, like the second book um mm -hmm. 
And now, you know, like a few weeks ago, I was doing publicity and um, uh, I just like to be a fly in the wall in our house. It's just it's a little bit mad here. But, um, yeah, I think, um, yeah, just trying to, um, I don't know, like do as much as I can but also, you know, say yes to the things that are really important, I think you know, for me have been the, has been the biggest thing because I think if I'm going to do something and I'm going to be like away from, you know, the boys or spending, you know, a whole day working, like it has to be really meaningful and it has to work, you know, on lots of different levels. Um, but yeah, normal day. I mean, like today, today I had like a picnic shoot for like the, the like lift out in the newspaper, um, like mm-hmm. in my backyard. And it was like, <laughs> we were like mulching the garden at like seven o'clock in the morning, <laughs> trying to make our garden look nice. Um, you know, I had, you know, I was cooking all morning for that. Um, you know, I took Karuki to kinder, came back, was cooking all morning for that. Um, you know, Nori had Yuki in the carrier on his back. <laughs> we really, you know, he was kind of helping me doing that, do that. And, you know, shot that and then I, yeah, it's just it, every day is different really. But, um, yeah, a lot of cooking, a lot of writing, um, yeah, it really varies. But I guess I definitely try and, you know, Mondays are my day, you know, just with Haruki and, and Yuki too. Like Nori's at work, Haru doesn't have kinder. I really try and, you know, make sure that we're just, I'm just like super present. And mm. even the weekends, like I'm really trying to, which is hard because, you know, Nori's home on the weekends, which often is like, instead of it being like, great, we can spend time with family. It's like, great, I can get my work done. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I'm really trying to, you know, kind of get all my work done during the week so I can, um, I don't know, relax a little bit more for myself as well, because I think that kind of never ending chasing your tail, like you just, burn out and you know that these like this week has just been completely so busy but then I know that I'll have you know a down or like I'll kind of try and schedule in some you know a few days of like you know being off and just being able to relax because you do really need it and I think especially like you know we like with the publicity for a book like you are just you know on all the time and I think when you're sl- sleep deprived and then you have to like do your hair and makeup and it's just yeah it can get away from it It can get away from you so I think trying to manage that is definitely like my you know goal at the moment Mm. (laughs) it's a bit of a juggle but um yeah and do you have much of a support network you know how this famous Mm. statement about a village oh the village (laughs) I don't I you know I have a lot of really good friends but I think everyone's busy you know like we're all so busy and I think it's hard like even though I know I, I can call them and I can count on them often I, I won't and I think that is like I don't know if it's um you know that thing of like asking for help or yeah, I don't know there's it's it's really funny isn't it because like I would be so happy to help anyone if they asked me but yeah mm-hmm. I've struggled to ask for help yeah. um I think, you know, my mum's in Melbourne actually, which is amazing. Um, But, you know, we've only been allowed to stay in like a five-kilometre radius and so she lives out of that. So Mm. she hasn't been able to come over until yesterday, which is amazing. Um, So I saw her for the first time in eight weeks, which, you know, we're so close and that's been hard. But my sister just moved back from New York um, 
And so that's been an amazing help. She lives around the corner and I just definitely feel, yeah, a lot more supported knowing I have a family member who, who she comes and helps out with, with, yeah, the boys and, um, yeah, that's been amazing because without it, you know, doing the first time with that, we really didn't have any support with Haruki. You know, we didn't have family around and it's really hard. Like it's really, really hard. <laughs> mm. It's interesting that you have an experience of having your first child when you were in a, a different work situation um, mm. to being a freelance creative that you are now with your second baby. How does that compare that kind of transition out of your time with the baby back into work? Um, I guess it's just the whole format is quite different, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, it's apart from, you know, like the paid maternity leave when I was a teacher, mm. um, I, yeah, even though like the lines are so, you know, blurry being a freelancer and, there is no kind of, I would say there's no like off time, you know, you feel like you're often always working um, because you just don't know when, you know, your next job's going to come or um, you kind of do, it's hard to shake that mentality of like having to kind of do as much as you can because, yeah, you don't know, you know, mm. what's coming next. But, um, you know, I love, I've, yeah, I love the fact that I can work from home and, um, I, you know, the kind of work I do centers around family, you know, cooking and, um, and writing and it's all from home and I can be, even when my sister's over, like helping me with Yukito, like, you know, I can have cut of with him still. And, um, I don't know, it's been a really nice, a nice, you know, I was working from, you know, my book was, was my book was meant to come out in April. And so, I had Yuki when he went in January. So I was planning on going on like a book tour when he was like three months old, mm. <laughs> you know, with him. And thankfully that all got pushed back um, to August. But um, I don't know what I was thinking saying yes to that. But um, <laughs> I got to the three month mark and I was like, oh my God, like, I, yeah, I can't do this. <laughs> um, yeah, like the, it's, it's, you know, the lines are a lot more blur, but I kind of like it that way. Like I can make my own rules and I'm, you know, I can say no to things if I feel, you know, too overwhelmed that week. Like I kind of have gotten really good at knowing my limits, I suppose. Mm. Um, whereas teaching, it was hard. I found it really difficult having like, you know, a young child and being a teacher because you give so much all day to like, you know, I was a uh, teaching Italian, so I would have a different class every hour. I would see, you know, over a hundred kids in a day, and you just really drained. Like you're physically and emotionally and socially drained mm. after a day of teaching, and you kind of give so much, and you have to be really professional and on. And yeah, I found that really more so. Yeah, quite difficult than coming home and then kind of, or even the off days. You know, have like yeah. I much prefer being a freelancer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, so it's, it's a very long-winded way to say. Oh, no, not at all. I completely agree with you because as hard as it is, um, mm. with all the uncertainty, um, perhaps there is a bit you know, less structure and you sometimes tend to work a bit more. But mm. at the same time, there's that freedom and I guess just the creative thing of, doing what you love is so yes nourishing even if you are so just fulfilling on one level but yeah and you know you're like doing it 
you know, for your, for yourself, I don't know, not that it sounds really selfish, but like in a way it is, but in a good way, you know, like oh, you're absolutely. really cultivating that, like, I don't know. It's yeah. I love it. <laughs> mm. And it's interesting. It kind of came up as a theme from the first season of the podcast where, you know, I was interested to ask about self care that, you know, how mm. do women factor in space and time mm. for themselves but lots of them actually said well my work is so mm. nourishing and so rewarding that you know in the act of you know baking or in the act of writing mm. I actually also claim that time for myself which I thought was such definitely. a definitely um, kind of experience that yeah. definitely and I think like that's one thing that I was so adamant to you know do not do differently but like my my mother was so dedicated to us like to the point where it was almost like I you know I wish she kind of had these other things in her life Mm. that you know really um sparked you know these kind of things in her because I think she gave so and she was a single mum like it would have been so tough um you know she gave so much to us and um we were kind of like everything in her life and she sacrificed a lot to the point where, you know, she didn't do anything for herself. And I think, you know, that's not helpful for anyone like for her or for us. And I think that's something that I've really been mindful of Mm -hmm. having kids is, you know, you know, like I'm going to go see my friends, like, bye guys, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. I think it's important for them to know that, you know, as a mother, that's not, all my identity is, you know, like I have friends and I have a career and I have things that I enjoy outside of, you know, my family. And I think that's a really, I just think it's so important to kind of have that balance and for your kids to see that as, you know, as a woman and as a mother and as a partner as well, like I am still, you know, I have this own identity. I think it's important. Absolutely. Oh, and it's so wonderful that you brought this up because it's such a big question of how we self-identify after children and Mm. you know my mother was exactly the same as yours and it's completely Mm -hmm. understandable how easy it is to kind of lose yourself in children Mm. yet it becomes quite a challenging thing because it's not really rewarding for either party Mm. on either end yeah and Mm. there can be some regret or resentment and it's very hard Mm. to and like you as well yeah for me becoming a mum this is something I've been very mindful of Mm. perhaps in some cases a bit too much kind of pushing myself to do more work (laughs) so that I'm not just yeah 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 I think I've kind of just starting to come out of that you know first year Mm. well it's almost two years now um that bubble of confusion like who am I I can't be just Mm -hmm. just a mother um, mm. so I think I'm just starting finally to kind of get a more natural balance going mm. and feeling and comfortable that, in kind of either role really yeah it's so nice like I think even you know with my second book they you know there was talks of like you know Haruki being on the cover with me and I was like I was so mm. you know like it's he's in the book a little bit and that's lovely but like I was so um you know I had such a strong feeling about him not being on the cover like you know number one he's a child (laughs) yeah and number two like I really 
didn't want it to be like this, you know, I have to always be tied to, you know, my, my son or, you know, this is I like my book and I really want it to be out in the world with like me, like if they're going to put someone on the cover, like, you know, it can just be me. Yeah. <laughs> I just think it's like, yeah, I think it's important to kind of claim your space when you, when you can. And I think that was something that I was really like strong, strong about. Mm. Yeah. That's wonderful. Yeah, it's brilliant to uh, voice that. I'm, I'm sure so many women will um, resonate with that sentiment as well. I would love to ask you for a recipe that you could share with us. Uh, yes. I mean, just scrolling through your Instagram, there's so many amazing ideas. <laughs> that, um, oh, you made you. a soup yesterday with like an egg and some fried onion on top. Oh, uh, yeah, that's from my new book. Yeah, like a lentil. Oh, my tool. God. I was like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I need that. It's so good. <laughs> yeah, lentil soup with, um, yeah, like fried onions and harissa and, oh. yeah, like a gooey egg. <laughs> oh, God. One thing that I love to make that Haruki loves too, and I've got, like, in my first book, actually, I've got this, like, ricotta gnocchi, and I just make it. We're coming into warmer weather here, so, like, we um, beautiful cherry tomatoes. I call it like my summer tomato sauce. Basically the, you know, I found, yeah, having kids, you kind of, I still wanted to make gnocchi, but, um, you know, making the potato gnocchi can sometimes be a little bit, um, time consuming. So this is kind of like almost like ricotta dumplings. Um, Mm. and so you've, yeah, you've got like the, um, fresh ricotta and some egg yolks and nutmeg and parmesan and some flour to kind of bind it all together. And you just essentially mix it all until it's, um, not, not a dry dough at all, but like not super wet. So you can kind of roll it into, into logs and then cut Mm -hmm. it into gnocchi. Um, and it's, you know, so quick and it's, really they're really light and fluffy and so make I make those and then this is a sauce I learned um from my friend Roberta who I actually worked for in Italy and you basically just put it all all of it in a pan together so you don't even have to heat it up like stand over like um cooking onions or garlic it's so easy so you put it in a cold pan um like almost a kilo of cherry tomatoes and some garlic finely chopped a large handful of basil um, and a really good glug of olive oil, like quarter of a cup, mm-hmm. um, and just and just salt, and then you kind of bring it up to heat all together. And um, as the kind of garlic starts to cook, the tomatoes kind of start to burst, and it just creates this amazingly delicious, jammy, um, sweet tomato sauce with just like none of the effort and I, I love those kind of dishes with kids because you can kind of put it on the stove and like step away and it all just like cook for you know 25 yeah. minutes half an hour and it's yeah so then you obviously cook the gnocchi and um stir it into the sauce and it's yeah I'm oh. just excited for that kind of food because we've been <laughs> just coming out of winter. So that's like my that's my go-to. That's like my weeknight or weekend whenever I go to. Yeah. Oh, that sounds amazing. Oh, thank you so much, Julia. It was so lovely to talk to you. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I, I meant to say I made your carrot fritters the other day. They're oh, so did good. you? Yeah, oh, with brilliant. apricot. It's genius. Anyway, I'm, yeah, <laughs> I love everything you do. So thank you for having me. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you for listening and for being part of the Motherhood community. 
If you are enjoying this podcast, please share, subscribe, rate and review. It really does make a huge difference. I'd love for you to join the conversation over on Instagram, where you can find me under Alisa Timoshkina. And do visit my website, alisatimoshkina.com, to find out more about the mother food cooking course and enjoy the recipes featured on this podcast. Thank you so much for being here and I can't wait to share the next episode with you.